Thank you so much. Um, welcome, everyone. I'm very glad also um, on, that you're here, that we can spend um, a couple of hours uh, practicing and contemplating the Dharma. It's a good way to spend a Friday evening. So you have the text that we're going to contemplate tonight. I, you don't necessarily have to look at it right now. It's, it's actually there for you to take home and to live with. It's one of those texts that um, it's like a living text that you work your way into. When I first came across this sutta, I don't know when exactly, it was a long time ago, um, I knew it was an important piece. It's a very pithy um, taken out of a longer sutta, but a very pithy, um, essential teaching of the Buddha. And um, it's been one that I've lived with for many years and like to unpackage. And uh, it uh, has a lot of depth in it. And in some ways, like many of these templates that we find within the teaching, um, encapsulates the whole of the journey uh, from the experience of being in a very constricted, samsaric kind of place into a liberated heart and uh, into our innate potential. So it, it encapsulates that journey in very clear steps. Um, and we can look at them as steps, but we could also look at, at it as a hologram, that they, they're kind of interconnecting pieces. So it's like a portal. You, you move into one piece and then the other pieces open up and then you find yourself going into a journey that opens up uh, into uh, a liberated um, recognition and realization. It was, a, it was the text that I realized, I'd forgotten that, but this translation, one of the translations, the bottom translations from Tenisaro Bhikkhu, the middle translation is an older translation um, from way back. I, I, I actually can't remember where from. And, but it was a text that um, when Kitty Saro, uh, my partner, many of you have met, and myself were first invited to teach and then live in South Africa in 94 after we left our monastic training, a friend of ours took this text and in the Pali and the English translation wrote it out in calligraphy in a very beautiful way and then we framed it and took it uh, to South Africa with us and it's still there in, in our small house at the Dhammagiri um, retreat centre there um, which we, we helped found and develop over years, a very small little centre but during the sort of all the turbulence and ups and downs of that process um, this, this contemplation and these words were something that, that I lived with a lot. And so I wanted to just take the opportunity for myself and to share, for myself a lot actually, <laughs> and to share with you some of the contemplations around this text in the hope that you might also find it something that you would like to explore and enter into more deeply and, and live with and find um, wisdom and solace and practical steps in terms of unfolding the teaching. I don't really want to approach it as an academic piece or a scholastic piece, so we can look at it like that, partly because I'm not a scholar and I don't feel overly confident in that um, domain. Um, I'd like to really explore it more as a, as a, a support for practice and a natural realize, support for realization. Um, and so I, in the write-up for this retreat, one way I encapsulated this journey, because it is, it's like a, a journey from that first line, Chandamulaka, Awaso Sabe Dhamma, Chandamulaka, all things, uh, rooted in desire, all things, until uh, the last, um, the tenth line, Nibbana Pariyosa Sabe Dhamma, all things terminating in Nibbana. 
um, or the way that I encapsulated it was like moving from the separative consciousness that we usually dwell in, the sense of me and you, me and it, and the vast range of reactivity between that, the subject and object, to the non-dual heart, jitta heart, the deep heart. And really one way of talking about the practice and one way that the Buddha talked about the practice is that we don't, in the Heart Sutta, another Sutta, we're not doing this practice for some of the benefits that arise from it, and there are many. We're not necessarily doing it for fame or renown. We're not necessarily doing it for um, developing good character and ethics. I mean, these are all fruits that can come about in the path. Although I'm not sure fame and renown is a, a fruit, it can be very tricky. <laughs> but it's certainly something that one can aim for with the Dharma. But we're not doing it even for insight and knowledge, insight knowledge, which is also very important and you know something that we spend a lot of time looking at in the Dharma. Um, we're not doing it for even deep absorbed, absorbed states or for psychic awareness, which can also develop uh, intuitive awareness in the, in the unfolding of the meditative work, but we're doing it for, when you went to what's the heartwood of this teaching, he said it's for the unshakable deliverance of the heart, the unshakable deliverance of the heart, which I think is a, it's like the heart in touch with the world, it's like we, we're in touch with that which shakes and wobbles, but the deep jitta, the deep, deep mind heart isn't shaken, isn't flooded, isn't overwhelmed, that which implies that we actually not only realize and taste and know the deep heart mind, but where we have um, increasingly an unshakable refuge there. So to, to actually take that journey into that unshakable deliverance of heart and to recognize this is actually what the practice, if we have an aim, this is an aim worthy to have. <laughs> much more worthy than many of the other aims that we go for. So it's, um, you know, and then I sort of subtitled that, that when we're in that separative consciousness that we're caught a lot in narratives, the narratives of the mind um, around the sense of me and it, and me in relationship to it, you, he, she, and so on, generates a lot of complex me territory and a lot of complex narratives, and you can look, look at that, um, some of which are, are quite constricting, some are quite isolating. Um, so to move from that into this heart, which um, is connected with deep intuitive intelligence, the intelligence of the Dharma, or what our teacher Ajahn Chah called the living Dharma. This, the Dharma is, is not just in the texts, and not just in the discussions or in the cognitive, but it's the living upwelling of the wisdom element that's innate, and it's sort of reclaiming that so that it starts to operate in our heart and in our minds and in our lives, and becomes actually that which guides and which informs and which is in resonant, wise response to what is, not just reactive relationship. So this, you know, this... Um, these first few lines of the sutta, rooted in desire are all things, born of attention are all things, arising on contact are all things, converging on feeling are all things. Um, are another way of talking about the beginning links of inter the dependent origination for those of you that are into these Buddhist maps, the, the, um, which is another way of looking at this, the beginning of the separative consciousness, the beginning of the way that we move into the sense of me and you, me and it, and the dynamic that, that happens there. Um, and this, this first line, Chandamulaka, Chandamulaka, Mulaka Mula is rooted, and Chanda is um, usually is translated here as desire which is a strong term, it's not, that isn't actually chanda, isn't traditionally, the word for desire isn't usually chanda when we talk about desire, when, we, when we're talking about a force that maybe can lead us into a, this experience of continually moving into this uh, 
we kind of call a sort of samsaric experience where you can never feel there's an end to it. There's always another desire. It's always moving away to something else. And that usually, I say, that's usually talked about as tanha, as like a thirst or a craving. So this chanda word is, in some ways, it, it is, desire might be too strong a translation for it, because it's also, chanda also appears as one of the elements of the four spiritual powers, actually. And, and in that meaning, it means um, a positive sense of desire. Yes, there is desire, and we know that that is a major cog in the wheel of what generates dukkha and satisfactoriness, because desire is never satiated. <laughs> Yeah, we can see that in ourselves, we can see it on the planet. But chanda has this feeling of, in, it can sort of maybe like interest or volition or that which moves us. That feeling of we sort of, we're in this like spacious awareness, maybe this is just an analogy. And everything's cool, you know, there's, there's just present, like in the meditation. It's just, you know, rising and passing of experience. And then you can feel like there's something that moves us. You know, and in the dependent origination, they, they sometimes call that avijja. The, 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 it's translated again as ignorance, which may be too strong a word. It certainly is, generates a lot of ignorance, but avijja is not seen clearly. Somehow the mind not knowing its own refuge, in its own brilliant, unmoving suchness, its unshakability of heart, the heart not knowing its own nature, there's this feeling of moving towards something out of interest, maybe curiosity, maybe stronger, maybe volition, has a sense of I, I want and connected usually with a sense of me. So, you know, right there, there's this movement and that generates the, the second line, Manisikara Sambhava. Manisikara is the mind the mind, Manisakara is an interesting word because it's also a word that's connected, as we'll see, to mindfulness. The mind is making, it literally means the mind makes sambhava together with craving. This feeling of like there's a, a, a moving of the mind moving to place attention somewhere. And upon that, this sabbe dhamma. This word sabbe means all, but dhamma here, it's not like the big dharma, but dhamma in this context means like the sense of thingness. You know, there's some thing that we perceive, and that thing has a definite description and shape. Like this is, for example, uh, Friday night at New York Insight. Um, and, it, and that's a dhamma, that's a thing that's constructed out of conditions that have come together and it creates this form. And here we are together in this form. It's a, the dhamma, the thingness of, of a constructed and conditioned phenomena that has, has you know, all the intentionality, you thinking, oh, I'll go to the Friday night, me kind of wending my way up from IMS where I've just been teaching, and here we are. We're in this dhamma, this thingness, but the thing about the thingness is it's subject to dissolving, any dhamma. And that's a sort of a coarser dhamma, but the dhammas are arising, moments of thinking, feeling, tasting, touching, perceiving, feeling, and so on, that something constructs. Now, usually, dhammas arise and pass away, but when there's this chanda and the a movement of attention where the chanda, where that interest goes, or what catches interest, and then where the attention's placed, that generates this, uh, you know, here it says, born of attention of all things. It generates the sense of world, our world. So it's, it's, you could say where we place attention, that's where our world, that's where we're born into the experience of the world. And you could put it like that. It's not necessarily the big world, the planet, but it's, it's a world, it's the world of, of where we appear, where we're born. Um, and those worlds can be external and internal and they interface. So, you know, like when we're meditating, we find our mind going along a particular groove and we, we get stuck in that groove. You know, say maybe an unhappy thought or a planning thought about what I'm going to do next week, then we're literally, when the attention goes there with that volitional interest, chanda energy, or sometimes stronger, maybe the desire or, or aversion or whatever, that kind of 
pushes that attention, then we actually find ourselves, the sense of self starts to be born into that construct. And it's connected with pasa, the contact, and uh, more powerfully, uh, vedana, feeling. So wherever there's a uh, wherever there's a contact, wherever that attention goes, there has to be attention, and then something that's that's the attention is brought to the object of attention. You know, so me in that thought form, if it's internal, external, me and the experience of going to New York, <laughs> for example, which you know, there's a subject, there's a me, and there's a contact with it. And in that, there's a, there's a dynamic, there's a duality, there's me experiencing it. And at the heart of that experience is, is this, this contact, and then there's this feeling. So, you know, often it can feel good, it can feel not so good, it can feel confusing. And quite often these first links are so quick, we don't really know, our attention's just moving all over the place. You know, it's like here, it's there, it's this thought, feeling, this plan, this idea. Um, you know, and usually it's moving, if you notice where attention goes, unless we're really absorbed into something like a movie, um, usually it's just moving away to something else, and usually away from the body. And you know, it's not so easy to bring it, as we notice in, in meditation, it's not so easy to bring attention here. So it's kind of this, this moving thing. Um, and then connected with that, what we bring attention to, there'll be the perception of what we're experiencing, receiving, but then there'll also be a feeling tone. You know, I like this, I don't like this. Well, maybe even the I like and I don't like is an extra. But that feeling, the Vedana, is very powerful for us. Because it conditions, conditions a lot of our reactivity and a lot of where we seek to place attention. Um, and especially when underlying our experience is, is that you know, we experience not very pleasant feeling, in the mental feeling or physical feeling or uh, emotional feeling. You know, so often our experience, as we've noticed as meditators, is that we're often with quite a lot of not very pleasant feeling at some level, so there's a sort of moving out in a way. Um, but, you know, when, when we start to look, so those, those, that, those are sort of realms where the sense of the me being born out of the, the non-dual, undifferentiated space of the jitta. You know, the jitta, the heart, the jitta, it, what is the liberated jitta? You know, the liberated jitta isn't creating anything, actually. It's not in the state of creating. It's not creating patterns or agendas or a sense of time or a sense of somewhere to get to. Um, you know, you could call it the state of being. You know, it hasn't got investment. And that's why it's quite difficult for us to perceive the liberated jitta, because it's, it's always present. But we don't perceive it because we're always acting on an agenda. <laughs> we're always this chandamulaka, this being born into something that's catching our attention, where we want to move to. And when that's very strong and very repetitive, then, you know, it literally starts to create the grooves of our life. And so we start to find ourselves going down the same kind of grooves, the same kind of decisions, the same kind of patternings, and if you notice, if you look over your lifespan, you'll start to recognize that those patterns are often quite repeating, unless they're challenged or deconstruction, reconstructed. So, but that isn't the, the liberated heart, that is just the conditioning of the untrained mind, basically. The mind just sort of going out and flooding out. But when it comes to feeling and what's felt, this is often when we talked about breaking the link of samsara, which means that endless feeling of going somewhere and never arriving, surely you must recognize that. You know, that often drives us unconsciously. We're looking to something else. And how long have we been doing that? <laughs> Buddha said a long, long time. You know, if you're into lifetimes, as in the suttas, like many lifetimes, <laughs> and gone through much dukkha, 
Um, and that's often driven by these very deep, unconscious, uninvestigated patternings. And so with feeling, at the place it starts to hit, hit feeling, it starts to feel quite personal. You know, we really interpret what is felt um, as a very personal thing. Um, and yet the Buddha said um, something very interesting. This is where this next middle part of the teaching, you know, usually when, when feeling arises, when this whole process arises and there's not contemplation, there's no mindfulness, there's no wise reflection, then we just go down our usual pathways. Reactivity, um, you know, and then the pain of that, and then our addictive patterns to try and cope with the pain of that, from subtle addictive patterns to very coarse ones and destructive ones. And we all have addictive patterns. There's no one that... Not, not, we're all addicted to samsara. <laughs> we're all addicted to some destructive kind of mechanism. But basically, it's often trying to alleviate this underlying uh, feeling of dis- disconnect. So to break that patterning, often around Vedana is the place that we can really intersect. Um, you know, just to notice, as we do in the second foundation of mindfulness, this is just feeling. It's pleasant, unpleasant, it's neutral. It's just that much, you know, just that much. And the Buddha said, you know, about Vedana, about feeling, it's just as uh, fierce winds that can suddenly arise in the sky coming from four directions, winds that are dusty or winds that are not dusty, world-pervading winds or world-destroying winds, weak, strong, and even whirlwinds. So it is that the body, just like those winds, various types of feelings arise one after the other, pleasant, painful, neutral feeling. There's something quite dispassionate about that because when when it comes to feeling, I don't know if you notice, but for me, my mind goes, I feel like this, and it becomes a big kind of issue. And it's not that I don't feel like that, and you know, if I was looking at it therapeutically, then I might look at it through the doorway of what you feel personally and unpackage that. But if I was looking at it through the lens of a meditative freedom, uh, uh, lens, then I would say, this is just feeling, you know, and I don't have to create a whole reactivity around it. So this slowing down, the process, slowing down and connecting, and if you notice, all things converge, all dhammas, all experiences have this element of uh, Vedana that we can lo- begin to locate. But instead of going down that groove of reactivity, then there's this beginning of applying the medicine. Um, Headed by concentration. I don't like the term concentration for samadhis, um, but it's still... And ruled, here the translation is dominated, but actually uh, patiya... Uh, Satadi uh, patiya means more like ruled by mindfulness of all things. Um, and then surmounted by wisdom of all things. So these are the three uh, factors that start to change the patterning of just going down a reactive, addictive, distracted, generating dukkha kind of pathway, saying there is agency when we slow this down and we notice in the meditation, like, what's happening now? That's a very good question. We started the meditation with it. Instead of, like, I need to get somewhere and get a calm mind, we already start a struggle. It's like, what's really happening here? There's feeling. (laughs) There's disconnect. So you can just, like, samadhi, this word, um, headed by, like, gathering or beginning to gather some gatheredness, some samadhi, even a moment of stopping and not just going down that keep moving path, moving away from what's unpleasant and difficult to be with, just for a moment going, take a breath and train that attention which is usually going out and untrained, it's just going out to this world, that world, this reality, that way, you know, bouncing around like a pinball you know, to this pleasant world, this that thought form, this thought form, that memory, that strategy, this narrative, that story. 
at the heart of which is always a, a me as the star player, <laughs> you know, suffering or feeling happy or getting devastated, all of that complexity of the separative consciousness in relationship to it, however we perceive the world that we're operating in, just collapsing that for a moment by this uh, samadhi practice. Samadhi is a big word in Buddhism, uh, and it can one can actually create a big project out of it. You know, like how many jhanas and this jhana and this. Dip. But Ajahn Chah would say, you just to to actually have wisdom and insight, you just need as as much samadhi as you need to read a book. That's really reasonably doable. You know, you just need enough to go. How is it now? And just steady up and pull back. And it's usually how is it now is not not great, <laughs> let's face it, you know, especially when we're in a busy life and, you know, that's why it's so hard to have a daily practice, is, you know, on your own, you know, if you sit with a group on a meditation retreat and you have to turn up, then you kind of, okay, something holds you in that seat. But you sit on your cushion at home and it's like, God, you know, that five minutes felt like an hour and there's another, you know, 20 minutes to go. Because it's hard, it's hard to actually, I think it's, you know, just to like draw back and con- so smarty is a bit like what helps contain, contain us. So we start, you know, you always remember with this practice, we're just always dealing with just this much here what's in front of us, not the big enlightenment project um, that we have to do. So just this much, can I take one breath? Can I just take a deep breath? That's a great start. So that's already breaking the pattern. Can I just like soften my body so I'm not in that patterning of those deep um, programmings, the nervous system, like sort of, you know, ready to go, ready to cringe, ready to contract. Can I just, even to sit and soften and open the body, Take a deep breath, three deep breaths. That's actually a very powerful thing to do. It starts to introduce this pause. It's like a, you know, putting a, a, a spoke in the wheel of samsara, in the wheel of becoming, the moving. It's like, slow it down, slow it down. So, so that's samadhi, moments of being here, moments of as the, the the Buddha advised so brilliantly, just come to what's here, your body. Work with that, feeling, sensation. Learn to connect with neutral sensation that's not so activating for you. I feel terrible. There's this terrible feeling. You know, so, well, how do you, how, what does it feel like with your foot on the floor? That's fine. Okay, well, let's just go there. Start there. That's still sensation. Take it out of this kind of place and steady like steady and as you start to gather already the energies of the body already there's a you know samadhi is something we work at over a lifetime but already there's some kind of gathering happening deepening happening steadying happening arriving happening and then there's training in that in the, in that heart of samadhi is this training. It's rather than attention being pulled out and creating this world and that world, it's the, the, the aspect of the mind. It's called mano vinyana. It's the, the that which goes out and differentiates names through language. You know, this is this, this is that, this is the other, and creates the sense of a world being an object to us. Um, it creates a sense even the self is an object to us. Everything is an object, you know, through that attention and that mind and that languaging and that naming. And, and when we live in a world where everything's an object to us, it's very lonely. It's very, um, it's very divorced from feeling like we're really deeply in the web of life. And that is most of our consciousness most of the time. It's in a highly cognitive, um, separative consciousness where there's me juggling this often s- delusionally created world <laughs> that we're in reactive relationship 
with that's being projected a lot by our own mind. You know, that we're actually reacting to our own projections. For example, you know, you know if you were, if you walk down the road and you, you see you see a spider, or you know, say you open your bed sheets and you see a spider, then you then you react, right? You see something and the mind starts to has a projection that is a bad thing and then you start to you maybe you feel fear and then you start to react to your own projection and it's got nothing to do with that spider nothing at all that spider is just doing its own thing but before you've even connected with that other being you've created a reality and then reacted to your own reality and to your own depending on what you're seeing and how you've been conditioned around what you're seeing you're reacting through your own fear or aversion or desire or lust. And so often what we're doing in life is we're just reacting to our other mind's projections, uninvestigated projections of the mind, fueled by very deep patternings and learnt um, prejudices about how we're seeing the world around us. And now we know we live in an extremely divided world. It's easy to do that in that separative consciousness to actually create a world of, of profound fear and reactivity and division by creating the other that we need to defend from. And so we now see that highly politicized and generated and creating um, a very dangerous situation. But what's not investigated is where are those projections coming from? You know, what is, what, and that's the, the mano vinyana, this mind that's untrained, that's constantly doing that. And it also projects inwardly. It projects, it creates the sense of self. And those inward projections can become very troubling. We don't really have a true reflection of this so-called self. We have a reflection according to our learnt patternings and our descriptions of the self and the narratives that we have been conditioned into either in our family or our culture or ideas we picked up about ourselves, And some of these are connected with very profound emotional learnings, connected with feeling tone that has a lot of energy in it. You know, I'm a really hopeless case. Um, I always get it wrong. Or maybe an inflated sense of self. You know, I'm really great. You know, whichever end of the spectrum, wherever we tend to land. But it's not really real, actually. It's real. It's real, and these are real enough because we can see it creates karma and that has an effect. But they're not really investigated. So this projective mano vinyana of the mind. So it's that mind that's going out, that with the power of attention to generate these worlds, inner and outer worlds, that in the mindfulness practice, that mind is pulled back and brought to connect on the jitta, the deep heart, the deep mind, if you like, and the patternings of the jitta and on the body, slow rhythm. So sati, mindfulness, is always married with this term um, yoni somani sakara, which means, so you see, mindfulness here is translated in the second, um, the tension, mani sakara sambhava, you know, the attention that's just pulled out, creating the bhava, this becoming, this creations. Yoni somani sakara, sati and yoni somani sakara, often are coupled in the suttas. And, and I'm using that Pani word because if you, you get out of the English, you actually get a deeper and fuller meaning of what we're meaning by mindfulness. You know, mindfulness is actually not a great translation, but it's what we have. You could say bodyfulness, heartfulness. You know. <laughs> um, but, um, the, you know, sati is sort of to remember to come back, to reclaim what has been lost, kind of, to remember to be here. Well, that which is able to remember, awareness, these kinds of translations. But the yoni somani sakara I like because yoni means, in the old translation, Pali, um, it means womb, actually. It literally means womb, yoni. You remember from Hinduism as well, yoni is a womb. Um, it also can mean sometimes translated as primordial matrix. 
Um, so it means the womb of awareness. That the, so the jitta or the, the deep awareness, the unshakable heart, you could say is like a womb. And the mani sakara means the creations of the mind. So you, you, so you. Another way you could talk about this rule by mindfulness of all things is bringing those creations, those projections, back into the womb of awareness, so you can contemplate them. You know, investigate to investigate what is being created here. So this surmounted by wisdom of all things. It's a beautiful line. Panutra satvedamma. Panutra. Panutra, pan, panya, wisdom, all things, everything that arises, we contemplate. Panutra sabedama, contemplate. Um, what is this, actually? What's really happening here? Because we just believe whatever it is, and off we go. So that pausing, that contemplation, that gathering, the samadhi to contain one breath at a time. Remember, it doesn't need to be heroic Olympic samadhi, you know, fifth jhana or something, just enough to read the book. You know, mostly during our daily life, that's kind of about what we can have to settle for. Um, it is good enough. You know, what is, what's happening here? I feel agitated. My mind's dispersed. If it, so where's the sense of me? Where's the sense of world? What's the, you know, so this interest, so that they the chandamulaka, rather than that desire going out to the next thing, it's actually interest in what's happening here. So it starts to turn around. It's the mind beginning to turn back on itself, which is the beginning of the journey home. And so this middle part is really the, the, the moving back home from the, the mind running out to the 10,000 things and getting exhausted out in those unsatisfactory amazing realms, but eventually it's like all evaporates like, you know, rose petals in the hands, there for a while, and then, you know, it sort of dissolves, bringing that back and beginning the journey home into the unshakable, immovable heart. So, surmounted, so contemplating, you know, we contemplate, you know the frameworks, you know, this is a nature, it's changing, that's one frame. You know, it seems so real, it seems so me, it seems so solid, and we look, it's anicca. It's uh, dukkha, means it's not reliable because it's shifting, dukkha. Or it's connected with unsatisfactoriness, or it's not perfectly, it's apart from the perfect, the whole, the akash, the space, shus. It's arising, it's a condition, a dhamma, it's, perfect. it's actually perfect. It's doing what it perfectly should for a condition, the condition realm. Everything is doing what it should, but because we put that extra leaning on it, we want to extract something more, and then it shifts, and we feel disappointed and lost. You know. So, and it's anatta. It's uh, you can't. You know, it feels like me. I'm so happy, and this was so much my project, and then. It's, someone hijacked the project. <laughs> and that's dukkha. I can tell you that's dukkha. <laughs> or, you know, someone died. You know, or, or what we were relying on, you know, our great wealth, and then there's a financial collapse. You know, even nowadays our planet, you know, we're the first humans that you know, that um, actually even our very, the very earth that we're standing on is now unreliable through man-made activities. That is, you know, it's anatta, it's anicca, it's dukkha. So this wisdom is seeing through another lens. It's rather than, yes, no, love it, hate it, and start to look through that lens. Um, you know, and at first, in the, in, the, in the worldly wisdom, you say, you know, we mistake what is impermanent we take for being lasting. What is not, you know, what, we, what is suffering we take for happiness. What is anatta, lacking in solidity, we take to be ours. So that's what we call the worldly, everyday, ordinary way we carry on. And then... And then we gain a bit of wisdom and we start to see through this other lens. 
But then they send this deepest heart, the non-separative heart. And this, I don't know if, I'm just going to touch briefly into this because it's very cool. And as I said, you can live with this. But the Prajna wisdom, this Panya, Panutra Sabedhamma, you know, it said you can't really say it's permanent or impermanent. You can't really say it's dukkha or non-dukkha. You can't really say it's self or non-self. You can't really say it's here or it's there. You can't really say things exist or don't exist. You know, there's a whole level of reality now that we're connecting with that is, that it be, that is beyond the cognitive definition, the very instrument that we're usually looking through, this dualistic, cognitive, timeline, linear way of defining the, world, the worlds we live within doesn't apply in reality, in the depth of the Dhamma reality, the living Dhamma. You can't apply the cognitive there. But that's where the heart really dwells. That's where the depth of our reality and our truth really is. So we can look through these lenses, you know, and so when we start to the when we start to move into this deeper wisdom, what's called the prajna in the Sanskrit, the Sanskrit of Panya, then it's another kind of whole level, you know, the prajna, if you you break down that word, it literally means um, it's interesting, it's, it, it literally means before you know something. It's like before you name it, before you go out and say, you are you and me are me. You know, and this world's an object to me and it's different for me and I'm isolated in this separate, unique personage thing that I defend with my life. And yet it's crazy because one minute you were, this morning you were one person and now you're a very different person, you know. So <laughs> what are you exactly are we defending? You know, but we do. We build our empires on, on me. But, you know, when you, when you look at the Prajna view, you know, this is why uh, Thich Nhat Hanh would say we're here to awaken from our separateness. Or Dogen says enlightenment is the intimacy of all things. There is the collapse of the me and the you, the subject-object. We're not in that dualistic realm anymore. We're in a very different heart, connected, interdependent, interfacing reality. Where, yes, I am not you, you are not me, but we're sharing an intimate web of a collective unfolding. We are deeply uh, connected and rooted and inter- interdependent. This is reality. We're not isolated, and every, not only with each other, but with the breath. You know, we can't breathe one breath without the trees, as we're finding out, and we'll find out when we carry on. <laughs> you know, we can't go one day without water. Uh, we can't, well, we could, but not many days, uh, and so on. You know, so even a bit of rational logic reveals how deeply we are in an interconnected world. But even more deeply in the jitta or the heart, the liberated jitta, it isn't experiencing itself as a separative consciousness. And this is why at that depth, you know, you talk about in the Mahayana, the Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin, or the, um, you're talking about the, the depth of compassion that comes because that which isn't separate from us is part of us, or is maybe on some deep level us. You know, not me as a personality, but it's all the one consciousness. And that consciousness, because it's resonant and feeling itself, you know, as it's said in the, just to shift lenses to the um, enlightenment of Avalokiteshvara Kuan Yin, uh, in the Sharangama Sutras, Mahayana text, in the moment of enlightenment, Kuan Yin's enlightenment declares in the moment when I, through the um, activity of listening deeply into the self-nature and the nature of all beings, when I was enlightened, I understood that I, I, I unified with the mind of the Buddhas above and I unified with all living beings below. And even the def- definition of above and below, the unified mind with all that is, is a deep-lived awareness of um, of our shared reality, our shared heart, our shared sensitivity, 
our shared empathy. And, and, you know, the implications of living from that place, of course, are vast and not the separate of consciousness. So this wisdom needs needing us, that's where, you know, it's leading us to open and to explore the heart, the jitta, you know, through, I mean, at first we have to work through the patternings and layerings, the conditionings of the jitta in the same way, you know, if we're looking at the ocean, we're just seeing the surface, but then dropping down to the still depth, you know, so just an analogy for this deep awareness. And this is why this beautiful line, as we're getting near to the end of the last three, you know, these last three lines are really talking about the middle lines we're just looking at, like the methodology or the way of transforming or moving out of that samsaric state. And then these last three lines are really looking at the actual deliverance, the taste of it, the freedom of it. The Vimutti Sarasabe Dhamma, this yielding is here is translated pretty literally, yielding deliverance as essence of all things. This is a very profound um, line, just this line to contemplate that essentially everything is already free. Vimutti uh, Sara, the essence of freedom is the essence of Sabe Dhamma, of all thingness. And we think, no, it's not, it's really constricted and it's really heavy and it's really unfree and that's how it appears and it's true that's not not true and we know there's a lot that's not free uh, individually and then in the world but in the in the moment the free heart the radiancy of the jitta the diamond-like consciousness is always radiant it's always present it's just not recognized in, in the same way we might go uh, to a movie. We're sitting there and we're, you know, like, I really want to go see this movie. And I'm really excited, I'm going to go, and we go, and I love going to movies, and we're sitting there, and it's a brilliant movie, and we're completely absorbed in the story. We might be laughing, crying, we might be fearful. We have huge emotional reactions. We have an investment in the characters. Um, and we're completely absorbed. And in a way, that's a bit like the mind in, its, in our life. Uh, you know, we're so absorbed in our stories. They're really compelling for us. And not only compelling for me, but let me tell you about them as well. <laughs> let me get, get you hooked into them. And then, you know, the movie stops. You know, or if you slowed it down, if you slowed that story down, like we do in meditation, you just see its frames. And maybe in those frames, each frame is just a color. And, and movement, you know, there's different lens that you start to look at. But what's interesting is when the screen, the movie goes, the screen, and then you, you, you look behind and say, what was generating those images, actually? And you realize you, you can't have a movie, you can't have the screen going, the, the, the frames going, if you don't have a light to reflect it, project it onto the screen. And in the same way as this pure consciousness of the jitta, so it's like the, the, the light behind the projections of the mind. It's just an analogy. So with muti sarasabe dhamma is in every circumstance, the most horrific, the most beautiful, there's awareness, there's knowing. If there's already freedom, you know, we just don't recognize it because we haven't learned to look. We're looking, we're absorbed in the frames. So just a question of, I just say just a question of, you know, it's a long question of practice to look away, look in a different way, turn the gaze inward, turn the gaze away from the fascination with it all. So this often in the path to these deeper freedoms, you'll find words like um, patinisaga, which means giving back letting go, or viraga, dispassion, these beautiful terms, nibbida, disenchantment. You know, these are some of the steps of not being so enchanted with it all. 
you know, it's more equanimity, you just soften. I mean, I, no- I notice as I'm getting older, you know, in this culture, getting older is like something's gone wrong with you. <laughs> you know, so it's just it's talking with Seb and I about, you know, like you're going a bit grey, let's get the hairspray out and like paint it back, you know, get it all, you know, it's, it's, um, but what I know is one of the advantages of getting older when, when you sort of, people, you're not so interesting to anyone when you get older, you know, you, you're sort of a bit invisible and, you know, but actually what you start to, to notice is that that absorption, investment in the stories and the energy around that starts to lessen, hopefully, you know, maybe by practice, but I think also just by attrition of aging. And then you start to notice the background. You start to sort of, you know, and so there's, there's, there's in that relief, there's something else that starts to operate. And if you can let it, you know, one of the, the terms for, this is another way of talking about refuge, and one of the, uh, the terms that the Buddha talked about as refuge, Obanayiko, means always inviting you. It's always inviting It's like this background, this depth. It's like inviting us. It's like, you know, we go, no, I've got to, and I must. And, you know, it's really serious, and it's terrible. You know, but there's this always inviting you to peace, to nibbana. So this, vimuti sarasabe dhamma, Amatogada, this beautiful word, Sabodhamma, inviting us, Amato means not dying. Mata, Mara is like that which is connected with death. Amato, not doing that, Amatogada. So that that which is beyond death, Amatogada, Sabodhamma, is always, it's akaliko. It's another word that the Buddha used, not in time. Akaliko, outside of time. So this is really another way you could say talking about the the true, unshakable, diamond-like consciousness of the heart, which is actually operating the nearest, nearest thing that's real on, it's real. We couldn't actually live without it, we couldn't experience another moment. (laughs) We're just missing it. Amatogada, Nidama, it's hehi pasiko, which means it's, it's, um, it's, uh, it's inviting and leading inward. Ehi pasiko means come here, come, uh, come, uh, sanditiko means here and now. Ehi pasiko, come and taste it for yourself, come and see it for yourself. Upanayako, inviting. Pachatam means. Uh, to be tasted in, like Ajahn Chah would often say, pachatam, pachatam, which means you, you can only taste this. You could sit in front of the Buddha and he could say, but, you know, it's like he said, I could sit here, and I mean, Ajahn Chah was much simpler than I'm being tonight. He would sit there and eat a banana, and he said, if you want to know what the nibbana tastes like, he said, it's a bit like eating this banana. He said, I'm eating it, but I can tell you about it, but unless you eat that banana, you won't know. So, um, so, nibbana pariyor sa sapedamma, terminating in nibbana all things. So, all things, whatever dhamma we're reflecting on, that we're looking at, that we're contemplating as it arises and passing, is actually, this is our teacher Ajahn Sumedha was saying that, he said, everything's taking you to nibbana, everything's going to nibbana, it's all going into cessation. It's all revealing the unconditioned, the unstructured, the unformed, the unborn. You know, whether it's a thought, whether it's a, a feeling, whether it's a, a storyline, whether it's a job you're in, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a, a sickness, whether it's your bank account, <laughs> whether it's a planetary system. You know, that, that everything has the nature to come into form, has already within it the seeds of its own nibbana. Yeah. Um, but in this regard, here, the, we're, we're exploring this, not making nibbana something so out there that you have to 
you know, like in 10 lifetimes, maybe, if I, you know, even the thought, I, if I, that's already the wrong premise, you know, that I will never get there. I must do so many retreats and so on. There's that patisina, letting be, letting go, and tasting peace here and now. It's, it's a taste, and taste of relinquishment, peace, true peace, deep peace. And, and we might have already had moments of that, we just perhaps don't recognize it. Sometimes when, when you're really sick, and you can't hold on, you know, or, or, you know, or something really goes, something happens way beyond your control, and you realize, I, have to, I, I can only make one move, it's to really let go. And maybe it's a disaster, often it is, but ironically in the heart of that, because there has to be a moment of complete surrender, there can be actually even a taste of peace and freedom. Not, it's not going to stay forever because there's maybe layers of trauma to work through and reactivity. Uh, you know, and for us as humans, we, we have to sometimes be pushed to that because we don't, we're not, you know, we're not recognizing that nibbana dhatu, that element of the unchanging and the undying, always here and now. So, as the Buddha said, etan santan, this, this, this is peaceful. This is peaceful. And this is worthy of us, and, and we're able, this is a teaching he gave for us as human beings. And this is the teaching for us that we can do, we can realize, um, little by little, when we, you know, so just to finish as a, a beautiful line from, um, again from the suttas, where it says, um, and I always, I always like to reflect on this, I always like to, when teaching retreats, begin with this and remind myself and practitioners over and over because we forget um, that maga hati kilesawa, which means the path, maga hata, means break up, kilesa that which obstructs, meaning the path activity breaks up that which obstructs this taste of peace. Path activity. If we come from the place I have to do this, and it's a big job, my big enlightenment project, as my, my brother in England, when he calls me up, he says, how's that enlightenment project going? <laughs> so, you know, so and that's how it can feel, you know, like a big, big project, this Buddhism thing. But to realize actually all we can only really, really ever do is a moment of path activity in this moment, a moment of mindful investigation, a moment of slowing down, a moment of samadhi, one breath, um, a moment of wise reflection, a moment of halting the horses of, of becoming this, that, and the other, and just learning to contain uh, the mind, so it can, we can contemplate it. That in and of itself, we're planting the seeds, and then the second line, which means pata means the fruit, upati arises according to the Dhamma, that the fruit of that activity the unfolding of these realizations, the recognition of the undying heart, the taste of peace, the unshakable deliverance of heart, arises naturally and organically according to the lawfulness of the Dhamma, not to our agenda, like already now, been practicing for decades, come on. <laughs> you have to have a, probably a pretty long view on this, but. Um, but it gives a sense of relief. You know, we don't have to control the outcome. We can let the outcome unfold according to its own nature. But what we can do, where we do have agency, is interact within the present moment with the path activity. How is it now? What's being felt? Where's the attention going? What's the projections of the mind? 
containing one breath, investigating, seeing through wisdom, listening into the undivided heart that's already here, already guiding us, already intelligent, already free. So Ajahn Charles said, regardless of time and place, the whole practice of the Dharma comes to completion where there is nothing. It is the place of surrender, of laying down the burden. It's the place where it finishes. That's a good place to finish this talk. (laughs) Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.